All right, welcome back to Ars Politica. So today I want to talk a little bit about the G3 dust-up over the last few days. I don't know what G3 stands for. I know, I know gospel's in there. Uh, but uh, it's been in, in reaction, reaction to Christian nationalism. It's this. I guess this started maybe a couple weeks ago. For whatever reason, they got the message to attack Christian nationalism. And then I had a, an infamous tweet uh, where it seemed to attract a lot of attention, including their attention. And so now they've decided to write stuff against Christian nationalism. And so I wanted to respond to a few of those things. I'm pretty busy, so I don't have time to write anything right now. Uh, and so I want to do it through this. Uh, I just, for the people who listen to this podcast, I apologize for not uh, having not done a episode in a few weeks, I guess two or three weeks. So I was sick for a little while. And I was busy preparing for this event at, in Dallas that I was at last weekend. And now I'm going to be in Nebraska next weekend or this weekend talking about Christian nationalism. And I'm trying to prepare five talks for, for that event. I have to do four talks in, in a day, uh, about 45, 50 minute, minutes long talk. So I'm trying to prepare all that stuff, making sure it's clear and, you know, and practice and all that. So I'm, I've been working on that. Hopefully next week in May, I'm going to take a little bit of time off from doing some of the, some of the things I've been doing. And, and so I can focus on, um, preparing the house to working on the house and property and also maybe writing some stuff. But anyway, let's get into this recent controversy. Uh, for whatever reason, the G3 guys, if you don't have a background, they're basically, as I understand, they're 1689 confession Baptists. I don't know much about their background other than, other than that, that they're reformed. And you know, I don't think we have any disagreements on, the, on what the gospel is in itself. And so I don't, I certainly would not consider them heretics, and uh, and uh, though I'm Presbyterian, and they're Baptists, and I don't see any any you know break in fellowship. I hope at least not. But I I want to respond uh, to some of the things that they've been saying, including in particular Josh uh, Bice. I'm sorry if I don't say your name right. I think it's Bice. Uh, the different shades of national Christian nationalism. He has a, a few questions at the end, which I don't think they're the best questions, but you know, I'll try to answer them anyway. Uh, the first thing I want to address though, is, is the reading of the book. <laughs> What's interesting is that people will criticize me and, but they haven't read the book and I, I don't, I don't blame anyone for not reading the book. I mean, it's 475 pages. It's kind of dense at times. I try to make it as clear, but also as precise as possible. But if you don't want to read 475 pages, I don't, I don't blame you. So if you don't want to read the book, then, then don't read the book. Uh, if you really want to comment on Christian nationalism, well, then just don't comment on Wolf's Christian nationalism. If you're going to talk about uh, my book, then, uh, then I, I just recommend that you uh, actually uh, you know, talk, read the book itself. And one thing not to do is don't take a screenshot from a page and then go from there and say, this is what Wolf thinks absolutely and not having not in, in context. In fact, to, to understand my whole argument, you have to read most of the book. So if you want to read the book, but you also don't want to read 475 pages, then skip like the epilogue and skip uh, maybe the, the chapter on the revolution. So if, and if, if you look at my definition, that's kind of a confusing definition. Well, it's because it's meant to be kind of the basic foundation, and then the rest of the book is explicating the definition. I mean, if it was all about just tossing out a definition, then you know these things would be easy. But the definition is designed so that I can have several chapters that explain precisely what it is. And really, most of the book is 
an explication of the different parts of the definition. Um, so, you know, stop at like the Christian Prince chapter and he basically got everything. Um, okay. If you're going to comment about religious liberty issues, I recommend you also read the Liberty of Conscience chapter because I go into a lot of detail and argumentation about that. Um, so again, reading, I mean, if you want to con comment on someone else's Christian nationalism, then go right ahead. I mean, I'm not going to challenge that and just, just make sure it's not, you know, my Christian nationalism. And, uh, and, and so that's why I've been saying like, do the reading. Then there's other times where people say they've read it, but they've just kind of so butchered the argument. You wonder if they just didn't read well, or they're arguing in bad faith. I mean, I just read, I just listened to a a talk at the Shepherds Conference given by a guy named Jesse Johnson, I believe his name is. I, I've never heard of the guy, but the he most of what he said was my position was either false or kind of a distortion of it. And it's just, it's really, it's kind of frustrating when you have you have people communicating a book they've read to people who probably won't read the book and in the end will will not read you know they will not read the book because well this guy's a trusted credible source but he's completely butchering the argument uh, so you know you know read and read well i'm guilty myself of not reading well so i, I don't i don't i'm not going to go too much of that but i think what another thing i want to talk about is i think what we're dealing with i mean this is james white said this on dividing line last night Basically, that we're dealing with things that are new, and but we're we we are and we're and we are not. So most of like, especially on church-state relations in my book, there's nothing innovative in that, and, and I've no, no one's shown me that no one's actually shown that that I'm that I'm somehow contradicting the sources I'm using from 16th, 17th centuries, or even in you know even the 18th. I'm not contradicting that. In fact, it's. I tried the best I could to to essentially regurgitate the tradition in those sections. There's some things in the book that I think are kind of new, and I'd want to think they're innovative, and uh, they they're kind of an application of the Reformed tradition in politics and all that. But when it comes to church and state relations, it's it's straight out of classical Protestantism. So, so in a sense, it's new, but it's new because most people, including people who have been studying and talking and debating and researching their whole lives simply don't know these things because it was kind of lost, kind of lost in translation in the sense that a lot of it was buried in Latin, though that's not entirely true. There have been translations of works available for a long time where you could actually read this stuff, um, but people just didn't didn't read it. And instead, they would rely on kind of on, on caricatures of the position that they would pick up from various rhetoricians like, you know, like I, I consider Russell Moore a rhetorician more than than an actual theologian. But if you read, he has some line somewhere where he says like the, the old coerce, you know, coercive politics force people in the faith, like using, like pointing tanks at someone. And, I mean, it's ridiculous, but it's the sort of thing that the sort of quote, I think that, that quote, I, I might've been par I kind of paraphrased it, but that, that quotes in um, Andrew Walker's recent book, Liberty for All, which got praised by Baptists. And it contains, there is no, no section that book actually presents the historic view of of classical protestantism by which i mean the sort of opinions that would unite a presbyterian like sam rutherford with uh, an anglican you know if you want to use that terminology of uh with um richard hooker the, the sort of claims that would unite them if there's disagreements between those guys all these guys but they would all be united around the about in fact they would be united around condemning 
the claims that uh, that uh, people like Russell Moore and now Andrew Walker and these and G three guys are kind of hurling upon them, uh, and I'll I'll get into that a, a little bit. But yeah, it's new because this old stuff is now being recovered, and I tried the best I could in the majority of the book to simply recover uh, that tradition, and no one yet has said that I have not done that faithfully in in the reviews to to my memory. And I mean, this includes stuff like, like well, this includes James White. I mean, James White's the kind of guy who like, you know, says something confidently, doesn't know anything about it, and everyone thinks he's right. Um, I mean, I think he's done a lot of good work, but that is his tendency. And one of those things he's called, calls it something sacralism. I, I've never heard this term before, sacralism. And he ascribes the sacralism to the the reformers, by which I guess he means everyone up until maybe part of the 18th century. So he has two centuries. Somehow we have, this is one of the wild claims. Like I, I you know, it's like, oh, it's a holdover from it. This is like a Van Drunen type, or like a, a radical 2K claim uh, that just kind of filtered through. Oh, it was a holdover from medievalism. So somehow for like 200 years and, and beyond, these guys didn't realize that their, their political theology was just a holdover from medie- medievalism. There's some, something incoherent. They just never thought about it. They all believed it, but they all, no one ever thought about it. I mean, it's a, it's kind of a bizarre claim on its face. I mean, on its face, it seems obviously wrong. But then you like this view sacralism, as I understand it, is that, well, this guy's a heretic and the church says so. So we're going to hand we're going to hand him over to the state to be punished because he's a heretic, which is an extremely simplistic. That's like a, a like. So how, how do you how, how do you exercise like kingdom authority with regard to what's true and what's false? Well, you just hand them over to the state to punish them for being a heretic. But no one actually affirmed or believed that. I mean, just even Servetus, for example, he's he was seized, he was a Trinitarian or excuse me, anti-Trinitarian, uh, came to Geneva, and even even Calvin is like, why did you come here, dude? Do you know what we're gonna do? Um, and he was seized by the authorities because he was publicly trying to subvert true religion. And then for several, I think several weeks, people like Calvin and others went to his his jail cell, I suppose, and argued with him, debated him, and tried to convert him with reason and uh, with scripture, and tried to change his his uh, his uh, heterodox theology. And they it was unsuccessful. And if you let him out, what's he going to do? He's going to either stay in Geneva and start preaching again, or he's going to go somewhere else and start preaching again. He's going to try to subvert people of, of the faith. And so the punishment was was death, which Calvin, of course, if you know the history, he didn't want it to be by fire. He wanted it to be like by beheading. But uh, it, it was a it, it wasn't simply oh um, you're a heretic and you have false theology now kill him. It was because they believed that the civil magistrate had a role in protecting the souls of people. That it wasn't just a matter of the body, but also the soul. And so the instrument that they have is to essentially strike at the body to prevent the sort of outward um, destruction of the soul. Okay, it's not safe. It's not safe. So the whole thing is a lot more complicated. Geneva is also not necessarily a special case, but over time, things uh, we uh, like Protestants became more tolerant of each other. And so I, I just think every, no one really kind of fully understands the the historic not no one but i mean but i think this is new because people don't understand the historic position um on the the role of the civil government with regard to the soul i don't want to get too far into it it's probably a podcast for another time you can read my chapter on the liberty of conscience where i go into this in detail and cite everyone and um 
so you, you can read that all, all there, but yeah, yeah, I think we should, I think mean, another thing too, is that if you want to, if you do want to attack my position on church state relations, just imagine what uh, the uh, classical Protestant would say, if, if you know what they would say. And that's what I affirm. Like there's really nothing innovative about, about that, my position, um, even though no one knows it, but anyway, I don't want to repeat myself. All right. Uh, kind of along those lines, uh, Josh Bice, can I think it's how you say this? In his article, <clears throat> Different Shades of Christian Nationalism, he mentions me and he, he gives my definition. And and uh, he he then says, he says that I conflate the keys and the sword. So there's like a civil sword and then there's the keys of the kingdom. What's uh, what's frustrating about this is that, I mean, I explicitly say in the book that I don't believe that. I, I specifically say that only church ministers have spiritual authority. Only they have exercised the keys of the kingdom. And that the uh, civil magistrate can only directly uh, affect and, and really address through law the the outward body. Now he can have a, a, like an intent of the soul, like he can have an in, like an ultimate intent. Intent is to protect the souls, but he can't actually command the soul. He can't direct the soul. He can't you know make it illegal for you to think a thought. He can't do that sort of thing. So there is a civil so, civil sword, or yeah, um, and the minister has the keys of the kingdom. Now, if he were to if he were to make the claim, here's what Wolf says, and that leads logically to conflating the keys and the sword. That's a decent argument. That's a sort of like ad absurdum. You know, you're you're leading someone's position into an unfavorable position no one wants to hold, which would be that. And he accused me of having a Roman Catholic theology that no one else believes. Um, that's that would be legitimate, but he, instead he just says like that's what he believes, and then then this is false, and therefore Wolf's view is false. So, which is not actually what what I hold. So that that's the that's one of one of the issues, and it just goes back to I think the the assumption that okay, Wolf is a classical Presbyterian or whatever he's 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 going into these old sources, and so what what do they do? They rely on this largely false understanding of what the reformers and the post-reformation reformers believed on political thought. I'm not being like, I'm trying not to be arrogant. It's just, it's just historically true uh, that the claims that they're making about me and them are, are false, if that makes any sense. So yeah, I'll just leave that at that. Now he's got a series of questions at the end, which I would, I would really kind of hope they'd be better questions, but they're, but I, I'll address them. I'll address them in uh, as best I can in, in good faith, and um, we'll go through these again. This is this article is the different shades of Christian nationalism from g3min.org. Okay, so the first one, this one more pertains to Baptists, but it says, "Is Christian nationalism, as defined in this article, compatible within the framework of the 1689 London Baptist Confession?" Can a person be Baptist historically and embrace this view of church and state relations? So I, I don't really want to comment on the 1689 Baptist Confession, but he says, is, uh, is Christian nationals as defined in this article? Well, we already know that he's, though he quotes my definition, the way he's framing that definition with the whole keys, sword, conflation thing, then we already know we're working with a, a bad definition. Um, so... And, so can Baptists embrace this view of church-state relations? Well, I can't embrace that view of church-state relations. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it wouldn't, not even, I think, like a, a, like a, a Roman Catholic could embrace that distinction. The conflation of the swords, the two swords doctrine, I heard someone else say that Roman Catholic, only Roman Catholics hold the two swords doctrine. Like, well, no, everyone does. It's just how you understand 
the relation of the two swords and the powers and all that. But, uh, but yeah, can a person be a, his, a Baptist historically and embrace this view of church-state relations, or has, as I understand it? Well, I mean, first of all, like I thought that if you read the book in its entirety, I tried to make it so that my Baptist friends could affirm as much as possible of Christian nationalism. Behind the scenes, I've kind of gone out of my way to tell friends that we shouldn't try to distance Baptists from Christian nationalism uh, because we need the Baptists. And and also, I mean, just in principle, I don't, not not just as pure strategy, um, but or it's not it's not mere pragmatism. I, I really think, and and I present this in the book this way, that Presbyterians and Baptists and Anglicans and even Lutherans could join if they want to. Um, they're they're the party that has to say okay, but we can can get together and and have and form what I've called pan Protestant pan Protestant civil order. And I go through in the last chapter, I think it's entitled Anglo Protestant Experience, where I show that in the, the American religious tradition, uh, you know, the American political tradition with regards to religion was in in a way the experience of it was one that went from congregationalism into kind of this toleration in religious liberty for non-Presbyterians or towards Baptists. And so there was, it wasn't just this, oh, John Locke showed up the scene with his enlightenment principles and, and that, wasn't, that was enough. No, it was actually a matter of developing Protestant principles such that we could, you know, we could, we could, we could imagine a public order, a civil order in which there was a Baptist church next to a Presbyterian church or next to a Congregationalist church. And in that chapter, I talk about how Cotton Mather, in early 17th century, I think it was 1717 or something around there, he he gave the ordination sermon for a Baptist minister. This is 1717. Uh, only a few decades later, there was the, the the authorities, the New England authorities, were actively suppressing Baptists erecting their own churches. And so, this is still Cotton Mather. I mean, he's still this guy's not. He's he's still Orthodox. He's a regular Puritan guy, and here he is essentially ordaining a Baptist minister in in downtown Boston. Okay, so you, you see this. There's a lot more to it. You can read the chapter, but uh, it's clear within our own tradition that it's not going to be this. That we shouldn't call for this sort of a sort of confessional state in which baptists and others are excluded or suppressed or oppressed or something like that that's certainly not the position i'm advocating for and so and i, I think baptists should get over this kind of persecution complex by which i mean that they they define their existence not all of them i think just maybe the the intellectual guys or guys with degrees um they, they kind of define their status as always embattled so they have they have no resources to then to then to then assert themselves such that they can actually shape the world positively they only have like this sort of negative like their only positive is that well we'll you know get get rewards in heaven for being persecuted like that's the only positive aspect of their political thought i'm not saying all of them but and so what they do is they they have no resources to think of how do we positively assert a christian vision into society into politics that goes beyond like mere neutrality they don't have anything like that because their 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 entire under, their, their understanding of themselves as Baptist in post Reformation history is being the minority, the embattled minority, uh, and so the, yeah. So I think that the task for Baptists ahead is to 
and I think people like William Wolf and others are, are developing this, is to think of a positive vision that actually puts up a resistance, uh, not only against secularism itself and the destruction of destruction of destructive forces that come with that, but also a Christian vision for society to see a Christian society, the sort of society in which Baptists actually did pretty well. I mean, if you think about it, Baptists pretty pretty well flourished in uh, in a a positive Christian environment, especially nineteenth century and twenty early twentieth century. All right, so I guess back to the can a can a person be a Baptist historically embrace his view of church state relations? Well, yes, if you understand the the totality of my my position, then then yes, uh, I think they can. There is a section where I say that pedo baptism does kind of lend itself better to Christian nationalism, just because you can, in in a way, you're baptized not just into the church but into a community, and that community can be both under ecclesial and civil authority. So yeah, that does it does lend itself. But I don't think it's logically contradictory. So that there's a there's a practical there's a practicality to that. Um, I don't think there's any logical contradiction between Baptists. And I do say something like, well, I, I think Pado Baptists are probably going to be the most stabilizing force and all that. But anyway, I'll leave it at that. Next question: Will the empowerment of a Christian prince and the punishment of sinners encroach upon Jesus' blueprint of church discipline found in Matthew 18? Okay, well, what's interesting about this is if if I were to uh, go as a church member, if I were to go rob a liquor store right now, at gunpoint steal a bunch of bourbon, I would probably get the the two different authorities would probably go after me. I'd, of course, be pursued by the police and the, the civil jurisdiction. But I bet my pastor, too, would say, you know, are you going to repent of this? And there'd probably be a Matthew 18 proceeding in that. So is that encroaching upon the punishment of sinners? Is that encroaching upon the blue, Jesus blueprint for church discipline by the civil authorities, authorities uh, punishing me for holding up a liquor store? No, it actually is reconcilable. One, uh, the church is saying you've sinned and you can be restored if you repent and all that. Uh, and and the and the but the state is like, okay, well, if you repent or not, doesn't matter. You're being punished. Okay, so there's two authorities, and they're both applying their specific authorities to that situation and to me. I don't think that's not encroaching. But what what this is implying is, oh, well, what about a guy who's like a heretic? But if you understand what I, the, the, the reason civil action, you use civil action against a heretic, is not to simply punish him for bad belief. In fact, that's not, that cannot be the justification, which I explicitly say. I, I have like three or four pages in the book where I say what the question is not. You know, that there's a traditional statement of the question where it's like, what is the actual issue between us? So instead of just spouting off a bunch of stuff, what is the actual issue between us? And one of those is the question is not, whether the civil authorities can punish people simply for holding a false belief. Okay, so I go, I say that explicitly. Why would then the civil government punish someone who's heretical? Well, it's because they are actively preaching outwardly something that's damning to someone's soul, not, 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 and not simply his soul, but more importantly and principally that he's trying to subvert people's, uh, people's faith. Now, you can disagree as to whether that's prudent um, or, it's, or, or whatever. But that's that's the view. And in other words, it's a civil action to protect people, just like it's civil action protected to, to take a murderer who wants to destroy your body. It's civil action to, to remove someone who wants to destroy your soul. Okay, So I don't think, given this question, 
it actually um, it's not encroaching. If you affirm that you can you can punish the thief in both authorities, then you can affirm you can punish the heretic under both both authorities in principle. Okay, it's a matter of prudence, of course, whether or not you should do that. And I'm actually thinking the next question we get to that. So number three, if a Christian prince is empowered, what happens to the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States of America? As, as a citizen of the United States and a citizen, Christian living in this nation, I believe that's a valid question. Okay? It is a valid question, and that's why I devoted an entire chapter to that question. It's the last chapter, Anglo-Protestant Experience. So the, the, book, the book is mainly just, just a Christian political theory, kind of um, a, a, applicable anywhere. I mentioned America, I don't think anywhere, up until the 10th chapter, and I mentioned a little bit in the, in the epilogue. <clears throat> But in that chapter, I, 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 I knew that, that people would, they'd read what I had to say and then say, but wait a minute, we're, we're in America. Like our political tradition is this, like we can't do some of the stuff you said in the early chapters. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to give you an entire chapter that reconciles the American political tradition with what I said before. That includes a discussion of the First Amendment and Roger Sherman, um, James Madison, um, uh, the different founders, also like the Cotton Mather thing I mentioned earlier, that's also in there. So there's just a, it's it's already, I already discuss it, and I, I'll, I'll briefly mention what I have, what what I'm, what I mean is like, so I, I like the Christian, pr well, how do I proceed from here? Well, I, I guess what I'll just say is that, like I said, there's a there's a there's a uh, tradition that, uh, or that there's experience that occurred from the 17th century, particularly from like New England, and how and a series of historical events and experiences that led to wide toleration out of principle. And the, and the, there's a reason. You see, I, I just had a discussion with Roman Catholics about this. And there's a reason why Protestants can can affirm religious liberty in principle, not as an ad hoc concept. Not as a pragmatic thing, not as some sort of, you know, like extension of extend extension of toleration that we could, you know, rescind. It's in principle because Presbyterians and Baptists they don't belong to the same institution, but they do. They are part of the same church, the the kingdom of God, which is spiritual, invisible, essentially, like fundamentally, a um, non you could say institutional reality. That's what the the church fundamentally is a sort of uh, people of, of true faith, right? Which means being institutionally aligned is not the ground of someone's salvation. And this was even recognized back in early New England. I mean, they, they admitted Baptists who believed in Baptist theology into their congregational churches. I mean, they, they restricted Baptists from starting their own churches. But they did recognize that though we have that disagreement and we don't really want you to start you know, talking about it, um, we still recognize you as brothers in Christ, and so you, you, we, we admit you into the church. So there's no kind of Lutheran type closed communion deal. Um, that's a discussion for a different time with Lutherans, but, but yeah. So Protestants can, in principle, affirm religious liberty not as a pragmatism, not as an ad hoc, you know, dictum of the Pope or whatever the magisterium, um, but as, but in principle. And so experience informed Christians. In America, that, that's why I call this Anglo-American or Anglo-Protestant experience, that we can actually have a civil society in which Protest, I mean, different Protestant denominations exist and um, kind of you know compete, I guess, in a way for followers, and that that could actually be possible because before the concept, I mean, even among like the old Church of England where they persecute the Puritans, it it was more of 
hey, we need to have a uniformed form of worship because that's you need that for civil unity. I mean, imagine people going to different churches and and have different forms of worship and liturgies, and we need people to be unified in this. And therefore, they kind of thought, well, the, the Christian king should have these sorts of powers to enforce these these um, these these uh, like ceremonies and, and other forms of worship to maintain unity. Well, then as time went on, they said, well, maybe we don't need that. And in America in particular, the into the 19th century, it was, okay, we don't actually need an establishment, which in a way was kind of true. I mean, one of the unique exceptional things about America in the 19th century is that there was no establishment after 1830-something, but very high religiosity. And kind of Tocqueville commented about this, that well, in Europe, you have church establishments you know, across the board, and yet you have low re- religiosity especially low kind of religious fervor, whereas the United States, it was like highly religious and taken seriously. So that was an exceptional. So, I mean, if people ask, well, what do you want to take us back to? It's like, well, there's the kind of 19th century religious life. I, mean, I don't have any problem with establishment in, in the States if they want to set up a quasi-establishment of, I don't know, Presbyterianism or whatever. Uh, I, I would be against if they would then somehow not, not grant toleration to other Protestant and, and Roman Catholic sects and all that. But anyway, that's um, so on the First Amendment. <laughs> Sorry, I'll get to I'll get the First Amendment. Originally, of course, the First Amendment says restricted Congress. I mean, people somehow forget this because we're so used to to the the Supreme Court dipping into what what prayer you can or cannot say at a football high school football game. We're so used to that. We, we don't realize that the first word is Congress. I restricted Congress. And it wasn't until the 1940s that that was incorporated, called the Incorporation Doctrine, such that now you can apply the Establishment Clause to the states and the counties and the cities and the school boards and anything else that that could be considered government. Prior to that, you had religion actively promoted in various forms throughout all the states, including church establishments from Massachusetts, Connecticut, Vermont, and, so, and, and several other, and these were quasi-establishments. They weren't like Church of England type establishments. They were just that kind of church, ta- like poll tax, like or church tax sort of things where, where the predominant identification would then have the most money and therefore like a sort of quasi-establishment. Yeah, the point being that the First Amendment, the, the whole, the, the, the design of it was, was not to deny state and local jurisdictions from being active in religion, but to constrain the federal government in meddling with their promotion of religion. So Virginia, if they wanted to, could be could promote Episcopalianism in a way, or uh, Connecticut, Massachusetts could promote Congregationalism. Pennsylvania can do its own thing and be kind of this, you know, religious neutrality sort of thing, which they weren't exactly. They weren't that, nor was Rhode Island, but they were kind of approached that. And yeah, so it was to constrain Congress. Yeah, I, I don't want a. I, I don't want to exceed or jump out or uh, the the constitutional arrangements that we have. I see no reason to do that. I don't see it's feasible or plausible. I don't want to do that. Yeah, so stop claiming that I want to destroy the Constitution. In fact, the people who say that have can they cannot have read the book or read it in good faith. I even say in the epilogue at one point, I say one of the aphoristic things I put in there is that we should go back to federal constitution, like um, the idea of federalism from the constitution. I literally say go back to federalism, which means kind of relying more 
on the importance of the state governor and the state go- the state government in in um, in pushing back against the federal level tyranny. So anyway, I don't want to, I won't keep going to that, but I, I'll go to the next question. I don't understand it. This is a weird one. Could the, I, I didn't want to? Could there be concerted efforts within the shadows of the political sphere that are manipulating a reaction within the Christian community to the woke agenda in order to bring about specific change in the relationship between church and state that could actually be weaponized against the church? No, I. I suspect that this is that Michael O'Fallon came up with this because I have no idea what the what it's even talking about. I think it's something I, I you know, I'm not even going to comment because I really don't even know what the question's asking. And it sounds like it's more suggesting something dark, like some dark secret plot behind the scenes of, of, of Wolf who lives out in the woods in North Carolina. He's planning the revolution or something. Um, or I, I don't know. I don't know what what's going on with that. So I'll just leave that. But the next one is actually uh, an interesting, though I think weird, quite strange question as well. Are there parallels between the methodologies of Christian nationalism and CRTI that introduce ethnocentrism? It's interesting. So one of the uh, one of the, the the criticisms I've received from a lot of people is my view of ethnicity particularly in chapter three, uh, is it is it related to CRT and intersectionality and all that sort of thing? This is one of those things where this is like a, I feel like this is like a boomerism where we have these terms and it constrains the imagination of what people believe because you get a sense of, oh wait, Wolf doesn't believe like he he's not he doesn't believe in multiculturalism. He believes you should identify with with you should that people naturally group with people who are similar to one another in cultural and customary ways and ancestral ways tied to people in place. You know stuff that that everyone once believed until recently. And then you see well that sounds like intersectionality. Uh, you know Wolf will say something that like. That there are differences between women and there are gender dynamics that are subtle and there's hierarchies and women act a sort of sort of way in male spaces and men act a certain way in women in female spaces. Is that intersectionality? Um, it, so, th- like all that stuff was is obviously true. There there are there are there is gender discourse. There's there's way that women can can manipulate men. There's way that men can manipulate women. All through this kind of gendered, um, I don't know, subtleties of power. So all that, all that stuff is just true. I mean, if we're, if we're, are we going to say we don't want, like we weren't going to reject CRT and critical theory, and therefore we can't believe that there actual are ways that power and hierarchies come about really in subtle ways and they have effects that you can, you can measure. Right. So, but recognizing that doesn't mean that you have to go full on into I'm going to attack whiteness and I'm going to be critical racer. It doesn't mean at the same, on the, you know, conversely, it doesn't mean you have to become a white nationalist or a white supremacist or anything like that. It just means you recognize reality. I mean, the, the subtleties of manipulation coming from our own regime now, where some, somehow they've normalized child mutilation. Now, if you if you if you don't have any 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 kind of analytical means or any way of analyzing how that came about because you've rejected these subtleties of power and how power operates 
in, in ways um, and how tyranny operates, then you're, you know, you're not going to make it. You're not going to understand how any of these things work. You're not going to understand. You're not going to be able to see liberalism for what it is. Liberalism and this, you know, oh, this is Marxist. Well, they, they were kind of right about this. Liberalism relies on subtle power relations that in a way kind of get people like normalize certain certain thoughts and certain behaviors. And they do it not through that uh, they do it through su subtle means of power. They don't do it. It's not like Marxism or feudalism or you know old style Marx uh, uh, of monarchy where where it's no you're going to do this and if you don't I'm going to kill you. And here's the law: do it or I'm going to kill you. It's more like if you don't do this, I'm going to ostracize you. You're not going to get a job. You know, I, I want to keep going on ramble on about this, but specifically about ethnocentrism. Now, if you were to go to Hungary. Which which ethnicity is the dominant ethnicity in Hungary, and and uh, it's what's well, Hungarian? I mean, there's other ethnicities in Hungary, but it's just unquestioned, especially especially by the Hungarians, that hung the Hungarian ethnicity is the dominant ethnicity in Hungary. So Slovakia is the same way. Slovakia and Slovakians are going to be the dominant ethnicity in Slovakia, even though there are ethnic Hungarians and others within Slovakia. Same thing with with Poland. Same thing with Ukraine. All these, all these different countries understand that there's a dominant ethnicity. And, and in fact, one of the reasons for the conflict in Ukraine is actually there was a dominant ethnicity and they wanted to homogenize and all that. So the idea that there would be a country that has a dominant ethnicity is literally the most common belief around the world. And, and so to be, to be very anxious about that as a is at least a universal idea or principle uh, or something that has to be squashed is literally liberal imperialism to try to undermine every other country's like other than Western Europe is to undermine their understanding of themselves that you somehow have to liberalize and multiculturalize just like America. It's the same kind of American imperialism, but okay. You're anxious, not about Hungary or Slovakia. You don't even know about anything about Slovakia or Poland. Um, but what about America, where we have all these different ethnicities, and how are you going to uh, how are you going to talk about uh, you know um, your view of ethnicity in the United States? Well, I understand that that's a legitimate question. It doesn't change my argument itself. My argument is that it's better for people to live in a uh, live among a people that have similarities, such that you have high trust, which has been demonstrated that that. Um, Cultural homogeneity contributes to high trust. Cultural heterogeneity leads to low trust. It's been demonstrated countless times. It's yeah, not even at the national level, but also at the count at like the you know the local levels. So it it just remains the case that if you're among people of similar culture, then there's going to be higher trust, higher mutual understanding, and uh, you'll be able to live better. You'll be able to live well. So yeah, but does that create a problem for the United States? And people, first of all, let me deal with the idea that from the beginning, we were a multi-ethnic country. We always intended to be a, a multi-ethnic peoples with receiving immigrants from anywhere, everywhere. That's just simply not the case. I mean, the, 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 for most of our history, and this is, people don't know this, unfortunately, most of our history was what you might call an, an Anglo-conformist principle that predominantly uh, most people believed in an anglo-conforming principle meaning 
not you conform to quote whiteness. That's just some boring dum dums who think that they know how to analyze, uh, you know, history. But no, it's it was we are uh, we come from an Anglo-Saxon tradition that this was what the founders, like Jeff- Thomas Jefferson, would say this. There were history books by George Bancroft and in England, uh, uh, Christine Mac- uh, uh, Macaulay, talking about how. There is this Anglo-Saxon tradition that flows through England into the New World, and that the liberties of of, of a kind of Anglo-Protestant America are a sort of, are uh, are derived from this Anglo-Saxonism, this idea that and, and so and this was predominant even in the 19th century and into the 20th century, which we'll talk about, and it was the idea that in a way there was like a tension here. Yeah, our views of liberty are universal. You know, they're, they're the rights from God and, you know, equality of all men. But at the same time, in order for you to affirm them and affirm them well, you need to conform to our essentially Anglo-Saxon, our, our Anglo-Protestant norms. And so you even have people like Benjamin Franklin trying to get the German Protestants to become essentially Anglicized, the, the Germans, to, to become good Anglo-Protestants instead of German Protestants. You have Irish and Roman and, and uh, German Roman Catholics coming in, and there was a lot of uh, fear that in particular their Catholicism would be tyrannical and would violate the sort of Anglo-Saxon, Anglo-Protestant liberties and undermine those um, because they are Roman Catholic. Now, whether, whether that's rational or not, that's what everyone believed. Even going in the 20th century, you want to talk about the progressives. Prior to World War I, it still was the dominant view, even among the left, like Jack London and people in the, the Socialist Party, that there should be sort of Anglo-Saxon conformity. Now, again, this is not a matter of conforming to whiteness or that like silly analysis you get from, you know, these second-rate um, academics. It's a matter of thinking there is this, there needs to be a dominant ethnicity in the country, but it's also a kind of open ethnicity uh, in which people of different ancestry can actually conform to it and in a way become that ethnicity, which is actually very much what I present in the book. I, I specifically say that there needs to be a core ethnicity and uh, people can intermarry to to kind of join that ethnicity. There should be, if someone comes to a country, they should, uh, and, and, they, and they're going to stay there for a while, they should seek to assimilate in through several generations as best they can. They should instruct their kids. We're Americans now. We need to assimilate into what what is America. I want my grandchild to be as American as anyone else. Okay, and this the idea of Anglo conformity, Anglo conformism, which again is a cultural ethnic thing. It's not a racial thing. Again, Irish and German and Italians and Polish were believed that they could conform into this sort of ethnicity. This was the predominant view until after World War II. So most of our history did not believe in the melting pot. It did not believe in multiculturalism. It did not believe these things that we believe today. And in fact, the the reason we actually believe, quote, unquote, we believe these things today is because the the left took over the institutions beginning the 1920s up into the 1960s. And that's the predominant view among the left and now the institutions. But if you look at the actual voters, the average person does not believe all these things. They don't believe that unlimited immigration is good. They do not believe that multiculturalism is good. And the holdout happens to be white evangelicals. And white evangelicals, by the way, are in that sense tied to the very to the American tradition 
prior to World War II. So the point being, my, my book is not white nationalist or let's return to whiteness or anything like that. It's simply saying that even in our own country where we prize our multi-ethnic this or that, it, it had the view for most of its history, you know, beyond the Civil War and all that, that there was a dominant ethnicity, that dominant ethnicity tied itself to an Anglo-Saxon tradition. You could say an Anglo-Saxon myth, if you want, that our liberties kind of arose and came out of the German forests and 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 went to England and and all that. And then there's even an interesting myth where I think Jefferson repeats this, where he says that the the people immigrated to the New World from England were actually the the, the Anglo-Saxon blood, and they were they were fleeing from the Norman conquest of centuries earlier. Of course, that's all a myth. Nevertheless, it was the view that you need a core dominant ethnicity that's Anglo-Saxon because it's the it's it's required, it's necessary to retain the sort of liberties that we have held from the very beginning. Okay, that's just the that's just the case. And the fact that people are committed nowadays to multiculturalism, that, that just it's violates our, our tradition. And so, yeah, I mean, I'll just just reaffirm what I said in the book. And I'm, I'm actually conforming to the American tradition far more than these post-World War II folks who are literally conforming to the multiculturalism of the left, of the people who dominate, who came to dominate the institutions. In fact, Anglo conformity was once the, the central, uh, a central tenet of the Protestant clergy until they were co-opted by the left in the progressive era. So if you want to be part of the American tradition, especially if you want to be, I don't know, conservative, then you know you should jump over these post-World War II talking points and get, get actually into what America was prior to the left dominating the institutions. Anyway, enough of that. Next one. Next question. Do the goals of Christian nationalism fit within the pilgrim ethos of New Testament Christianity? In other words, if John Bunyan had been a Christian nationalist, would we have Pilgrim's Progress? So in other words, his critique of like Vanity Fair and, and these things, these people. I mean, one of the things, you, you, I, I wouldn't want to take, I don't know John Bunyan's political theology. The guy was a Baptist. I, I don't know. So I mean, I mean, yeah, but I, you know, I've read Pilgrim's Progress, of course. He goes through Vanity Fair and critiques people. I mean, one thing to keep in mind that this this is a, an allegory, and it's to speak to people's souls. So, yeah, it certainly is the case that, and and as I've said about cultural, as, as I explicitly say about cultural Christianity in the book, yeah, it can only on its own produce hypocrites. Like you need the preaching of the gospel. You need to tell people to believe by faith in Christ. It's not enough even to assent to the doctrines. You need to trust them by faith. You know, um, and so yeah, if I don't. I, it would honestly surprise me if John Bunyan looked around and said, "Yeah, this is better than what I was in," or, uh, or if he looked around and said, "Yeah, I, I, I think that that sec- that hostile secularism is is better than than cultural Christianity." I think I don't think he would agree with that. I mean, um, the Pilgrim ethos. Of, well, what, so when, when we talk about the Pilgrim ethos of the New Testament, well, then what what's the principle of our action in, in civil government? Are we? Is it? Does Pilgrim ethos really mean neutrality? Does it really mean that we ought to uh, insist upon hostility? Could you not be pilgrims that are aided by the various forms that uh, of gov- of um, or authorities that God has ordained? It w- wouldn't it be weird? God ordains civil government for our good, but somehow 
you can't aid pilgrims along the way. Like you're passing on the road and you can't have you can't have a, a government program that feeds you and gives you water as you're heading over to the celestial city. You know, that, that's that's not permitted with the so quote pilgrim ethos. I mean, what's what's your principle? Like what's your political principle with this pilgrim ethos? So I, everyone wants to kind of talk about this idea, well, yeah, we should be engaged politically. Well, why can't we also orient these institutions God ordained for the good of the pilgrims? Why must it be hostile or neutral? It's just, there's not a clear principle uh, of at work here. Now, what I'm not, and I mean, this goes to, I think, an important point that I think the critiques of someone like Michael Horton, uh, Van Drunen, and other guys, when they critique the transformationalist, I critique the, the neo-Calvinist transformationalist as well, because they see the transformation of the world as an end in itself. I see Christian politics as ordering the institutions for your good. And that good includes not only good vocations and earthly life and all that, but principally for eternal life. So when I think of pilgrims on the way, the pilgrim ethos, I would want as you're traveling along that road, especially if there's a dark patch, I wouldn't mind the strong king coming over and chopping it down and planting flowers or, <laughs> or handing you water as you're going through that. Like that's my pilgrim ethos. It's not, hey, let's get off the road now and stop being pilgrims and and build a build a house and just stay here in this you know this uh, this second rate world or whatever or, or whatever. Uh, so you have to understand. You have to not think that my position. And I know there's some post mill guys who think this are more on, in line with the transformationalist neo-Calvinist perspective. But that's not my position. I think it's perfectly in line to say a pilgrim can be handed a bottle of water by a civil authority as he goes through a, a difficult uphill battle. Okay, I think it's okay that a, someone with authority can, uh, can stop the mouths of, of, of someone along the way who wants to tell you to turn back. I mean, imagine Paul, uh, Paul Bunyan, John Bunyan's moving along. And uh, and some naysayer comes up and starts attacking him and and uh, what's the I haven't read it in so long that the, there's the, the castle he walks into like what if the, the the civil ruler shows up and destroys that that uh, the dark you guys are probably all screaming it right now I apologize so anyway I, I I won't keep going on that I think I've explained that enough but let's go to the next one when it comes to ordering a Christian nation under the banner of Christian nationalism, what version of Christianity will be enforced? In other words, will it be a minimalist approach embracing the Apostles' Creed or something more robust? Who makes this decision on what creed is the law of the land? That's actually a good question. <clears throat> what version of Christianity? Well, again, if, you, if you've read the book, um, you'll know that uh, I, I do grant powers to the civil government in terms of principle or what's permissible for them to to enact with their authority. But what's permissible is not always useful, helpful, advantageous, expedient, blah, blah, blah. So, uh, and or appropriate. So as I've said, I, I kind of like the high religiosity of the 19th century without establishment. I'm okay with establishment in principle. I'm even okay with, I mean, not exactly Church of England declare the form of worship. I think I'm, I'm okay with, say, like the congregationalism of New England. Um, that, that kind of church establishment of 17th century. I'm okay with that in, in principle. And I think in the car, in the uh, New England context, that was actually appropriate. And this is one of the arguments you, you see it in the book and, and uh, my dissertation speaks about this as well. And I quote increase Mather, but that wouldn't be appropriate in, in the, you know, uh, 1789. It wouldn't be appropriate for the early Republic. 
so different places will have different, I guess, intensities or or uh, more precise versions of Christianity. But let's okay, let's think about kind of enforcement here. Okay, let's just go through like the the Ten Commandments and think what what could we agree on that could be enforced? Like what the the question? This is like <clears throat> it's like an epistemological question. You know, you know, like who's going to decide? Is the magistrate competent enough to know what is true and what is what is false? Let's just take like the baseline stuff here. Uh, somehow, second table stuff he knows about. Like he knows it's wrong to lie, cheat, and steal. Uh, it's it's wrong to murder. That kind of thing. You should protect. You should protect. You know, reputations. You protect property. You should protect life. Um, that sort of thing, right? You should ban like pornography. Obviously, all those things. So that the second table stuff, I guess, is is obvious. Somehow we don't need to, I mean, you might need scripture, but somehow we can have confidence in those things. Like, so they, it's okay. Yeah, you guys get to decide that stuff. But what about first table? So just take like the first commandment. First commandment says, says essentially you uh, ought to worship the one true God alone. Well, I guess uh, polytheism is out, right? <laughs> you know, okay. We know that polytheism is false. I think that's pretty clear, especially today. I think we go on safe ground to say polytheism is bad. What about atheism? Well, I think we can be on safe ground that atheism is false. And also, I think there's good evidence to believe that being an atheist is bad for yourself and people around you and also the political society. Look how atheists vote. You know, I, I, I guess James Lindsay will vote for maybe a libertarian. But m most um, most uh, atheists are atrocious voters. And they're also woke, by the way, too, which is hilarious uh, for several reasons. But yeah, so I think we know that. Okay, so atheism bad. I think we can we can come to that. That's all. Now, like we're bowing down to uh, or human sacrifice, yeah, we know that's bad. So can we can we ban human sacrifice? That's that's false worship. Yeah, I think we can do that as well. What about Trinit trinitarianism? Because the one true God is the triune God, right? Are we? How confident are we that tr that Trinity is true? I hope everyone's saying I'm confident that the Trinity is a true doctrine. Well, if you're confident. Then why is not the civil magistrate who is Christian competent to say that that's a true doctrine? How I mean, so how low on your confidence level do you have to be to say, well, I don't want uh, Trinitarianism. Then you know, I don't want him. In, he just he is not competent to know the Trinity is true. Like, okay, really? I mean, you, you have to apply the principle. We're all confident, but somehow this one guy who we install as our civil ruler cannot be or is not. All right, second commandment. Second commandment deals, you know, in the reformed tradition is kind of understood to deal with uh, like the forms of worship, the elements of worship. And so this is where like the Puritans and um, kind of uh, fought with the Church of England and all these things. So the question of regular principle of worship and all that. Now, this is this is an area where there still can be agreement. Now, this is where there is disagreement such that if you have a pan Protestant order, if you want to have a tolerant society, like a tolerant religious society, there are ways to to have in constitutionally to mitigate the some of the overreaches. So if you want to say 16th century England overreached in its enforcement of forms of worship, then okay, then constitutionally we can then kind of restrict the way that the government can um, talk about forms of worship. Uh, but there are forms that you would think again, human sacrifice uh, is is bad. I think even like snake handling could be illegal as well uh, because it's dangerous to people and harms people. Uh, so there's things, that, I, I mean, th this is an area I admit that we ought to be careful because this is where 
we, we can have problems and, and we can start uh, uh, giving the civil rulers too much authority over issues that they could be could not be competent in. I agree with that. And then this is where we should have, again, wide uh, wide toleration. You, you can have an established church and toleration at the same time. You can have a Presbyterian establishment and let the Baptists do what they want to do. So third commandment would be basically honoring the things of God uh, and and uh, I mean, there's also an aspect of vows as well, but I think generally speaking, it's about honoring the, the, the things of God. And so I think, yeah, is it wrong to burn the Bible in public or burn the Bible? Yeah, I think we can agree on that. Is it wrong to put up art that de that uh, defaces Christ and mocks Christ? Is it wrong to have these these kind of crass jokes that some people like Bill Maher and the, the sort of blasphemies that he does some occasionally on or has done? I think we can all agree that's bad. Can civil magistrate be competent enough to say that's bad when we install him as our civil ruler? Yeah, I think he can be competent to do that as a basic thing. I mean, that, what's interesting is that like epistemologically, all these things we should say are are clear, especially if we are installing them as Christians to do these things. Fourth commandment on the Sabbath. Okay, well, we all agree I think we all agree, except for some Seventh-day Adventists who can be exceptions and tolerated, just perfectly fine, that you ought to worship on Sunday. Now, you may not agree. Some you may not agree that that the, they should the civil government should close businesses on Sunday. Nevertheless, it doesn't affect your worship. It doesn't affect anyone's ability to worship. People can still go to the even if they disagree with the Sabbath laws, they can still go to worship on Saturday. Now, if it was uh, the law was I'm going to compel all the baptized to go to church, which was you know some some places did actually do that. That might be that might be too far. And I'm not advocating for that uh, in the American context. In context, I don't think it's wrong in principle. It's a uh, it, it is kind of fuzzy logically, but and I kind of try to deal with it in the book. But I don't advocate that for in the American context. So what version of Christianity will be enforced? Well, it, it's it's kind of the wrong uh, the wrong question. I mean, I think you could say, yeah, Nicene Apostles Creed. Uh, there there would also be a promotion of Protestantism. I think pr Protestantism promotes um, liberty better than than Roman Catholicism. Um, I mean, at least it did. Now, nowadays, you kind of wonder if Roman Catholics have, have begun to think like Protestants with regard to politics. But anyway, that's a different question. So it's just it's just not a good like a good question of like what version will be enforced. It it's really kind of missing the point. And also it, there like I said there are baseline things we can all agree on that these with confidence that these are the sort of things that ought to be enforced. And if you're thinking, well, couldn't they a guy seize power and start enforcing Roman Catholic or some heretical position? Yeah, yeah, that's true. They could do that. They could also enshrine child mutilation in, as a right in law. They could do that as well. Should we then not give have civil government at all? Should we just go full anarchist because they can abuse the second table as well? I mean, if, if you're saying, well, they, they might abuse the first table. So you've got these obvious epistemological truths as that we can affirm as Christians with regard to the first table, okay? And we consider obvious truths from the second table, and yet here they are violating it and child mutilating children. 
So that this logically, logically, if you're going to d deny any action with regard to first uh, commandment, or excuse me, um, first table, then you also have to deny them any authority or epistemological authority with regard to the second table. The last thing I'll say is just to reiterate something that's really important, and I think this is true for everyone in this discussion, even people who would be kind of on my side, is I think we have to think of politics as instrumental. It's not an end in itself. It's not like a principal command of the gospel. All these things, when we talk about politics and cultural Christianity and uh, all these things, these are, these are a means to an end. They are means to provide for our good. You know, we strive. I, I, want, a, I want cultural Christianity. I want to live in Mayberry <laughs> because my kids would be safe and have positive values and live a good life within Mayberry. It's instrumental. It's not as if it's an end in itself. So we have to keep that in mind. Why would we enforce aspects of the first table? Not simply because it's a command or we must do it as a obedience to God. It's, it's a command because it's good for people to worship the true God. That, that's why. And if through civil action we can create conditions and environment in, in which people are directed to that, not coerced, of course, but they're directed to that, then we ought to do that. And this is where the, the prudence steps in, where you have to ask, well, is it prudent to go this far or to do this or that? Will this actually conduce to the end? I mean, you think of it, what is a law, a civil law? A civil law is a good law only if it actually produces good. If it's producing bad, then it's a bad law. Even if they have the best of intentions, even if in another place it would actually be a good law, it would actually be considered good, it could become bad because it's no longer relevant or for whatever reason the circumstances make it a harmful law. So you didn't have, so this is not like, like some kind of crude theonomist would think where it's like, here's our set of laws and punch. Oh, all right, we're a Christian society now. No, you have to think, you have to craft the law and understand how it's going to conduce to actual actual good. I don't think there's anything else. I haven't even looked at how the time. Okay, we're past an hour. I just kept going on and on, didn't I? I think we'll leave it at that. I, I did notice that Scott Anionio, so I'm sorry, again, I don't know how to say your last name. I noticed that he, he put out a something on cultural Christianity, which I think more actually proves my side than his, but uh, I'll have to comment on that at another time. But anyway, um, thanks for listening if you've gotten this far. And uh, yeah, I'll try to do more of these beginning in May after I get through this thing on this weekend. But all right. Bye-bye.